Welcome to the latest edition of the NPM Podcast. I'm John Burke, Managing Editor of NPM. Joining me today is Eli Katz, a partner at Latham & Watkins and Global Vice Chair of the firm's Energy and Infrastructure Industry Group. Uh, Eli, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, John. Uh, Before we go into it, we also just wanted to mention that Latham uh, obviously had a very busy year as it topped uh, NPM's 2022 U.S. Greenfield Development Renewable Energy Legal Advisor League tables for 2022. So congratulations on that. Um, So we really wanted to uh, give a sense to our listeners uh, about where things stand for the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Um, We've uh, now witnessed a good, strong five months of companies giving guidance around certain things and how it'll be impacted by the IRA 2022, whether it involves uh, the acquisition of projects, the acquisitions of companies, uh, new developments. Um, you know, it goes into all different spheres. Um, but most important to note is that um, the IRS has not really given full guidance on the act quite yet. They've only given guidance around certain things. So um, Eli, can you just uh, start off by just giving us uh, a sense of where that stands and when we ex- can expect to see full guidance? And then thirdly, you know, should we expect any surprises uh, when actual full guidance comes out? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, we probably get this question as often as you do. Um, so uh, <laughs> worth noting that. Uh, so of course, IRA comes out uh, in August uh, and a number of a large number of the programs were not in effect until the beginning of 2023 anyway. Uh, so uh, while people wanted to know what the future holds, I don't think they uh, absolutely needed to know. Uh, as you know, or as most of your listeners know, the IRS has put out one piece of guidance um, or one major piece of guidance. They put some out uh, around electric transport, but the, the big piece of guidance they put out was on the prevailing wage rules. Um, I think what the IRS is struggling with right now is whether to try to write comprehensive rules all at once, which would probably come in the form of uh, treasury regulations, and that could take many, many months, or whether to uh, put out piecemeal guidance on what people are telling them or what they consider are the most pressing questions. Um, and that's uh, the answer to that is going to be important in terms of timing. Uh, it's also the case that um, some of the provisions uh, in the IRA, the IRS is directed by Congress to put out rules within certain time periods. So for example, the environmental justice credits, they've got to put out within six months. Uh, and six months is, is, is coming up uh, probably mid-February, mid this month. Uh, I think probably by the end of this quarter, we'll see some guidance uh, probably around um, energy communities, probably around domestic content. Uh, the other very important topic people are looking for guidance is on uh, tax credit transferability. Of course, that's going to change the entire market. Uh, and that may take a little bit longer. And that's probably the area, tax credit transferability, where the government has the important decision of whether they want to be comprehensive and slow or whether they want to get out just a few, answer a few pressing questions um, uh, you know, in the weeks ahead, 
and then uh, keep doing so until they get everything out, uh, which you know could be a process that can take many months, even years. Great, uh, thank you for that. Um, so let's talk about tax transferability. Um, obviously, with many, uh, with a very long act, with many clean energies affected, um, it seems the transferability uh, clause comes up quite a bit more than other parts of the bill at times. Um, how do you think that this will affect the project finance uh, landscape? And um, you know, as part of this, um, you know, there's an expectation as as um, financing these um, solar and wind farms becomes a little bit more easier with with the you know as transferability replaces you know tax partnerships. There's a simplification in the universe expands. That's sort of the expectation, but. Um, maybe walk us through why it's going to be effective and where do you see some of the newer entrants into the, the, the market come from in terms of tax transferability? Yeah, it's a good question and, uh, you know, very, very broad topic. So so uh, tax credit transferability um, is was probably the biggest surprise in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, the uh, You know, back to the Build Back Better days, um, Congress was kicking around a, a form of transferability called direct pay uh, and, and was not seriously considering the idea that someone like you or I can build a project and then just sell those tax credits in the open market. So it came as a surprise and showed up you know, as part of a compromise that Senator Manchin was part of. Uh, and uh, certainly the biggest surprise, I think, in the, in, in the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, the initial reaction to it was that this is fantastic. Um, many people view the tax equity market as a bottleneck to what could be uh, much more dramatic development in the U.S. Uh, there are only a handful of banks that do tax equity. Uh, there's only so much they can do. And however large you think the market is, 10 billion, 15 billion, 20 billion, whatever your estimates are, uh, probably the hardest thing uh, for people to do if they want to develop all the megawatts that are in the in the queue is to get enough tax equity. And so this was thought of as a way to avoid the tax equity market or provide some sort of uh, safety valve. Um, the provisions are not yet in effect. Um, the, the rules when they came out said you got to wait six months in order to do a tax credit transfer, and it's not six months yet. So nobody has done one yet, or you're, you know, people have drawn up agreements to potentially do it in the future, but you can't have done it yet. Uh, the most important question around transferability is going to be, uh, what, is, what is the price? Are there enough buyers going to materialize that are going to buy the credits at a price that's close to a dollar per credit. And, you know, various various folks trying to estimate or guesstimate what the prices can be. You know, some are as low as, you know, in the low 80s, some as high as in the mid 90s as to what people will pay for the credits. And certainly it's going to be supply demand driven like every other market. Um, it is the case that um, a lot more projects will get done because of the tax credit transfer market, undoubtedly. And that's because there are 
tiers of the market, mostly, you know, think smaller CNI solar uh, or some newer technologies, uh, particularly some of the new technologies in the energy transition that are considered maybe a little bit more speculative, um, they will uh, now have access to uh, selling tax credits when they would have a really hard time attracting tax equity and may not even be able to attract tax equity. Um, so it'll it'll be a big boon for that market. Um, the tax equity market itself is also getting much busier. Uh, most larger developers who have access to tax equity have concluded in the meantime that tax equity is a better bet for them than doing tax credit transfers. And I suspect over time, you'll see a lot of transactions that are hybrid, where you do some tax equity and then you sell some of the tax credits. Uh, you asked about who the new entrants would be, and you'd think at some point it could be almost anybody. And so a lot of large companies are going to be faced with the question of, do you wanna pay a dollar of tax to the government or do you wanna pay 90 cents to a developer? And the economics of that should be fairly easy. Um, this is another area where uh, the IRS guidance is going to be important. Um, there are some big questions hanging out there, including what liabilities a buyer of credits continues to have after it buys the credits. Can the credits be recaptured? There are questions about how large, who can be a buyer? Can it be... Um, just corporates, or could it even be, you know, retail market like like you and I? Um, and how the government decides to answer some of these questions is going to influence how successful this market is going to be. But you know, looking ahead, if you say you've got a ten year runway now, where you can not only where you know you're going to qualify for tax credits across a broad range of asset types, you know that you could tax equity finance them or sell tax credits, you've got to believe that this is going to be um, a tremendous boost to uh, the energy transition uh, across the United States. Uh, thanks for laying that out, uh, Eli. Is there um, some precedent for transferability elsewhere in other transactions like real estate at all? Um, there's some there's some precedent. Um, you know, the closest precedent um, is probably what the renewable energy industry had in in something called a cash grant, uh, which applied uh, right after the financial crisis in 2008, uh, when the United States Treasury uh, gave developers a window to kind of come in and cash in their tax credits. Um, and that program, uh, the window was open for two years, but it had uh, generous grandfathering rules. So people were still getting cash grants out, you know, four or five years after the program already closed. Uh, and I think, I think, I want to say the treasury gave out over $40 billion. Uh, so an enormous amount of money, tr money trading hands. And that was well before the market was as large as, as it is today. And it only apply to pretty much solar and wind, which were really the only technologies being built at scale back then. Mm -hmm. uh, now it applies to so many more. Um, so you can look at kind of that market. Um, you can look at uh, state tax credits. There are a number of state tax credit markets where you can buy and sell tax credits within certain constraints. 
and people have thought about, you know, what should the rules there apply to the rules here? Um, there are some federal tax credits that are kind of refundable or that you can trade, but not on any scale that would give you a sense of what this market could one day look look like. Um, you know, with the good comes some risk that the market um, becomes chaotic in some sense, or that there's fraud in the market, or people are buying and selling credits in ways that are unintended by Congress. So I think, you know, a lot of a lot of folks who want to be responsible about this and make sure that this market grows really large, but also has uh, staying power, um, are thinking hard about what should be the rules about how that govern this marketplace. How much arbitrage should you allow people to do in these markets? Uh, should you allow people to broker transactions? Uh, is it okay to have um, people um, you know, selling and buying multiple times? And so some of the rules are designed to curtail that, but um, that is going to be a big question going forward. And it'll be an extremely large experiment that has not been tried before in the U.S. tax code. Um, there is, you know, some people remember way back something called safe harbor leasing in the 1980s, uh, where uh, the laws were changed to say, you know, instead of instead of selling an asset to someone and leasing it back. You can just write on a piece of paper that it's informed, sold, and leased, and transfer the tax benefits of the assets to um, to the company you want you want to transfer it to. And it lasted all of six months or nine months. Was quickly repealed. Um, the press on it was really bad, as a lot of big companies zeroed out their tax liabilities, and people just didn't understand why or how. And so this is. Um, this is a this is a large experiment that um, you know everyone involved needs to proceed cautiously with, and if it works, it um, it will be uh, one of the greatest catalysts to change the energy grid in the U.S. that we've ever had. Uh, well, Eli, you you answered my follow up question there. I was going to ask about how these credits might be transferred. You just uh, walked me through it a little bit, so thanks for that. Um, yeah, let, sure. let's address the uh, part that didn't get the same love in um, IRA as it would have under uh, Build Back Better, direct pay. Um, it was obviously not, not made wholly available through the IRA, but merely through certain tax-exempt entities, such as Native American tribes um, and other, other tax-exempt entities. Um, what's your expectation of this uh, vehicle? Do you think it'll be used? I mean... Um, you know, the Native American tribes have certainly had a long history of, of ownership of certain operating assets on their tribal lands, such as casinos. And I kind of expected that once I saw that, I was kind of thinking the same thing there, that they would then certainly be willing equity owners in uh, projects like this, uh, particularly when there's now a tax advantage to it. But just uh, wanted to get your thoughts on this particular um, uh, part of, of the IRA. Yeah. Uh, so direct pay, um, you know, as it appears now, you're right, is is I, I think it's best viewed as kind of a companion, a companion tool to uh, tax credit transfers um, in some ways or in many ways. It is better than tax credit transfers 
because there's no discount. And so effectively what direct pay could be looked at as is that instead of going out into the market and selling your credits, the United States government will buy your credits and they are buying them for uh, for a dollar, right? Without any discount. Uh, making people who are eligible for direct pay in or putting them in a in a better position than people uh, who can only use tax credit transfers. Direct pay, uh, like you alluded to, is limited. Um, so it it applies only to tax exempt entities. You know, one of them being Native Americans, so people who are not subject to income tax if they own a project. And it also applies uh, in some limited way to certain types of credits, uh, like the advanced manufacturing credit um, and the 45Q credit, the carbon capture credit, uh, and hydrogen credit. So there are, uh, at least for some period of time. So some of these uh, newer technologies could use direct pay, even if they're not tax exempt. But generally, the wind, solar, energy storage credits, you know, kind of let's call it the conventional renewables, the only time you can use direct pay is if you're owned by a tax-exempt entity. Um, I think probably the thinking was that these people shouldn't buy and sell credits because they're not filing tax returns anyway. So the easiest thing to do is just have the government give them the dollars uh, instead of them buying and selling. But again, they've got a built-in advantage now because they know they get dollar for dollar while everyone else selling is going to take some discount, presumably, on it. Um, this has led to um, kind of a rethink. Uh, it used to be the case that tax exempts were uh, a very poor choice to be an equity owner of renewable energy assets. Uh, they not only didn't value the tax credits, they actually disturbed the ability for other people to take the tax credits because there's all sorts of rules about if you have tax exempt owners, then they can't give their share of the credit to someone else. Um, so tax exempts have always had a problem getting into this market, and that includes you know, large pension funds and so on. This kind of changes things pretty dramatically in that they now may become the preferred equity holders of of renewable energy assets, again, because you know they can cash it in in full. Um, so yeah, we, we, we certainly expect to see much more tax-exempt money coming into these sectors. How they come into the sectors, again, is going to be an important question that the IRS is going to have to answer. And that question is, um, can they come in in partnership with other people and just claim direct pay on their share? Uh, can they only claim direct pay if they own the entire asset? Many of these tax exempts are not set up uh, to own assets entirely. They need someone to manage it. And so some of, some of how effective direct pay is going to be for tax exempts is going to come down to the question of how easily they could be combined with others who aren't eligible for direct pay. Uh, but certainly a, um, a bit of a transformational shift in terms of attracting tax-exempt capital to, uh, to energy transition assets. Great. Um, so there's obviously a lot, of, a lot of clean energy areas and manufacturing, of course, was addressed by the IRA, IRA 2022. 
Um, can you talk, um, you know, what areas would, will be more advantaged than others uh, through this um, passage? Yeah, um, you know, the IRA is uh, obviously a tax bill, but it, it, you know, disguised in it are a lot of other important policies or what, you know, Congress thought were important policies. Uh, one of them is domestic you know, building out the, the, the U.S. supply chain. Um, and that is somewhat controversial, at least if you talk to our trading partners. Uh, but this is the first time, at least in any major way, where U.S. tax benefits uh, have hinged on or will hinge on um, using domestic content, using uh, equipment that was manufactured in some part or in large part in the United States. Um, and so I think you'll see a big build out of the U.S. supply chain. So how fast that happens will again depend, like you alluded to at the beginning of this, uh, beginning of our talk, is how, how the IRS chooses to implement this rule. Uh, to the extent they choose to say that uh, something is only domestic if you go all the way back to its subcomponents. So like in solar, if you got you got to manufacture the cell in the United States, um, then that may take a long time to do. If they're more liberal and they say all we want is people manufacturing modules or people assembling turbines in the U.S., then you'd expect um, a massive wave of U.S. manufacturing to grow. So I think it is super helpful to U.S. manufacturing any, anywhere you are in the U.S. supply chain. Uh, not only does the manufacturer get tax credits, but anyone who uses the manufacture, the U.S. manufactured products gets enhanced tax credits in their projects. So that's going to make that's going to make them big winners. Uh, the other big winners, and this you know wasn't even a secret, but built into the IRA, were also provisions that are going to help union labor. And so, in order to qualify for most of the credits, um, one needs to you pay prevailing wage to uh, Davis Bacon Act uh, prevailing wage to people who are building the project or maintaining it. Um, and uh, so that's a big boon for labor, labor union. And, and one can say, you know, depending on your politics, you know, a big win for, um, you know, income equality. Right. So that the, the folks building the blue collar workers building this get paid more. Uh, so the IRA is a complicated and very large law that that embeds in it um, a lot of other social policies that the U.S. is trying to carry out, including union labor and domestic content. There are also provisions that give advanced tax credits for projects that will be located in certain areas, mostly um, low-income low income, uh, census tracts, or census tracts or areas that where that had uh, former employment in the fossil fuel industry, um, and so to that extent, um, all those types of those locations, U.S. manufacturers, labor unions, 
uh, will gain tremendously by the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, but probably, and certainly the biggest winner, of course, is you know, the climate, right? Because this is going to dramatically accelerate um, something that we've had to do for a long time, which is reduce uh, the carbon intensity and carbon emissions coming out of, of the entire US economy, whether it's electricity or whether it's manufacturing or real estate or what have you. Okay, so um, one of the bigger storylines in 2022, as we steer away from the IRA here for a little bit, was the state of the PPA. Um, you know, the, the prices have gone up dramatically. Um, I think Level 10 had reported um, this week that uh, wind PPA prices finally went down for the first time in two years, but the solar PPAs have kept increasing, um, you know, with, with the supply chain, really, um, yeah. a crisis exacerbating the issue. So um, if you could just make a couple of quick observations about where these things stand now, um, you know, between utilities, between developers, or, or are they starting to find middle ground? Is this kind of going to be an ongoing thing? Um, what, what, are your, what are your observations about some of these renegotiations that are going on right now? Yeah. Um... Yeah, this has been it. This has been kind of a hot topic uh, for a couple of years now. Uh, so clearly, with the huge IRA tailwind, which ha which I don't think the industry has fully felt yet, um, there are headwinds. Um, some of which are moderating, and those headwinds, of course, are. And you touched on some of them. Uh, there's obviously uh, commodity inflation. It costs more to build projects. Um, there is certainly uh, supply chain disruptions, um, which makes it take longer to build projects, which makes them more expensive. Um, there is the case that um, a lot of the low cost suppliers no longer work anymore, uh, whether it's because of forced labor issues, whether it's because of uh, anti-dumping rules or, or other trade barriers. Uh, and so uh, what has happened is uh, people who have you know, priced, uh, priced their power on certain assumptions, those assumptions no longer hold. Uh, a lot of the buyers of green power these days, as you of course know, are big corporates. Um, you know, primarily technology companies are still, still the biggest buyers of green power. And they've got their own incentives and own, re own reasons why they want to continue to buy green power. Now, um, what we have seen by and large is that people are willing to renegotiate uh, power purchase prices if that's the only way you can get green power. And so it's an understanding that while, you know, you, you certainly don't want to renegotiate and give, uh, you know, give the developer free money that they weren't entitled to, you also need these projects to get built, and at the and and at the price they were originally priced at, simply doesn't work anymore. Um, now, of course, when it goes the other way, the developer wins, right? Like it's not like uh, people go back and say, "I will now pay you less." Uh, but again, it is these are these are conditions beyond anyone's control. Some of which are moderating. So inflation is moderating. Uh, there's certainly an expectation. Uh, that the customs department will will begin to release more of the of the modules that they're currently holding, um, 
And so, you know, you, you probably see some easing going on and the full effect of the IRA has not yet been priced into these projects. And as those benefits become clearer to people, they, uh, they may not need prices this high. Uh, but by and large, I think what you see is uh, because the end goal is a shared end goal, which is we need to build these projects and we need to buy green power and we need to put the green power out onto the grid, there is an understanding that one can hold the position that means it will not get built altogether. And so there is common ground uh, being found in terms of uh, repricing many of the projects that were, one could say, were mispriced over the last couple of years. Great. Um, so just to um, you know, bring it home, if you can just uh, talk about what you see as some of the um, deal trends that we're going to see in uh, 2023. Um, either uh, M&A um, of platforms, and there, there's still platforms out there, uh, and also from a project level standpoint as, um, you know, that also, there's not like a new trend or anything um, by any stretch, but, you know, you feel like the, the more developers there are, the more, you know, projects or portfolios that are looking for project level equity. It may not be a a change of control it might be a minority stake. It might be just um, a few projects changing hands, but um, and and utility is now becoming more active in sort of the build transfer market. Um, so there's a other, a lot of layers out there in terms of buyers of projects as well as buyers of platforms. So perhaps you can just walk through your own observations about 2023 in terms of what we can see in, in terms of trends. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, a couple a couple of trends that that appear. Uh, you know, uh, appear likely. Um, so, you know, you talked about uh, M&A and platforms traded. Uh, perhaps we've seen the peak of that in 2022, 2021. I mean, 22 is a little down from 2021. Um, yeah, but a lot of the major platforms that had strong management teams have traded already. Um I'd say that maybe with the exception of energy storage, of course, that just got that uh, big boost from the IRA. Um, uh, you know, you've probably seen a lot of the platforms trade. You're still going to have some of the big, big utilities selling off, like Duke's going to sell. They've announced and, and AEP's got a big platform in the market and, you know, Con Ed just sold. Uh, but by and large, kind of the management teams that have the, the platforms that were, you know, super active in, in the M&A markets in 2021, 22, probably you see that diminishing a little bit. Um, agree with you, there'll be um, a voracious appetite for what we you kind of call, you know, mid-stage to late-stage development capital. And that's, um, a lot of developers now who, for the first time, have a very long runway in terms of the subsidy regime. So you've never had more than two or three years in the U.S. without facing either uh, uh, a cliff or a phase down of tax credits. And now you've got more than 10 years. Um, and so you've got the most stable regime, which means... Uh, you can make the longest bets right now about 
what you want to uh, bring to market over the next decade or longer. And that's going to take a tremendous amount of capital. And so I think we see a lot of minority trades. I think you see a lot of developers also, um, maybe the larger ones, trying to lock up uh, this, their, their supply, supply routes, so to speak, uh, right? Get long-term contracts with vendors, particularly if you need them to be in the United States. And so you might see some partnerships there where developers actually put up some of the capital to build out the U.S. supply chain and secure it that way. Um, I think in the project finance market, um, you know, we've seen rates come up some, uh, but it's still a super active and liquid market. Uh, and I think what you what you see is larger projects come into market. Um, I think you see um, the some, I would say, you know, some concentration um, in the hands of the better developers as they uh, aggregate larger and larger asset pools. Um, and then you see probably a, a, a watershed moment as, as some of the early stage carbon capture and hydrogen projects begin to commercialize. Um, whether that's through entirely through subsidies from the Department of Energy and, and tax credits, or in part through people actually seeing a viable way to make money on these things. And then that market, um, if it can gain traction, could be uh, an enormous game changer. Uh, so that's that's you know some of the some of the trends we see. And one of the fastest starts to, any year that I've I've been part of uh, and I've been working in this industry for about 20 years, but there is uh, there's a lot of vibrancy right now in the renewable energy sector or energy transition at, at large, as a lot of the a lot of the pieces start falling into place. Uh, no doubt, and and I think the uh, commercialization of hydrogen and carbon capture projects will have to be a, a podcast for another day. Yeah, yeah, um, no, but that is a, that is its, its own topic. Actually, maybe two, <laughs> to, to be honest. Um, anyway, Eli, look, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for coming on today's program. Thank you and, for having me. Yeah, and uh, please uh, tune in next time. Uh, Perk out. Thanks, John. We're wrapped. Thanks, Eli. Appreciate it.